Whoa. <laughs> well, with today we officially began our series, In Him, For Him. We had an introduction about two weeks ago, and today we're going to jump right in. Of course, what we'll be doing is a study through the book of Ephesians. So uh, good news and bad news today. Good news is we're beginning the series, but bad news is you got three pages of note there, notes there in your passport. <laughs> if you will, look behind the prayer request. Look back there first. I just want to review what we covered two weeks ago, and then we'll jump right into the sermon this morning. So in the back of your prayer request, you see the timeline of Paul in a church at Ephesus. I had several people wanting this timeline. Now, let me tell you about this timeline. There's no certainty about the dates. The dates fluctuate. Matter of fact, when you start looking at different study Bibles, you're going to find those dates are kind of all over the place, but uh, most of them would put the dates where you see them here. The three important dates that I want you to see as it relates to Paul in this letter are between 49 and 50 AD, you have the birth of the church at Ephesus. Around 52 to 55 AD, Paul stays in Ephesus for a period of three years. And if you were here two weeks ago, you, you, you heard all the events that took place while he was there. And then between 60 and 62 AD, Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, the one we're going to be studying over the next 19 weeks. And so you see there's all kinds of things that surround this, but these are the best dates we can give you. Now, let me give you the breakdown of Ephesians. Now, it's a real clear-cut breakdown. Chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 6, okay? So positionally, look on your outline, positionally, we're in Christ, okay? That's what we see in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but practically, we are for Christ, and we see that in chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3, we see spiritual wealth. Chapters 4 through 6, we see a spiritual walk. Now, chapters 1 through 3, we have discoveries of the faith, while in chapters 4 through 6, we have demonstrations of the faith. Chapters 1 through 3, Doctrine of Christ, and chapters 4 through 6, Devotion to Christ, and then lastly, Christian Privileges, and then chapters 4 through 6, Christian Responsibilities. Now today, we're going to kind of do a little two-parter, and so today we're going to be looking at new spiritual realities, and we're looking at part one of that tonight, I mean today. See, I'm, I'm ready to go to bed. Never mind, okay. <laughs> so look at the introduction on your original outline, okay? That's where we are now. We'll stay right there. Many scholars have written that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 are some of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. Now let me just tell you this. From personal study of four of the verses we're going to cover today, I'm here to tell you I believe that those scholars are correct. This is some of the most powerful material that we find as it relates to our relationship with Christ. I mean, it is loaded. Now, they clearly, these verses clearly describe who we are in Christ and the new realities, new spiritual realities in which we can now live. The reason many of us yield to temptation in our flesh, by the way, let me ask you, did anybody do that this past week? Oh yeah, I think we could all say we've been there. The the reason many of us yield to temptation in our flesh is not just from sheer weakness and self-centeredness, but also from not having a clear understanding of who we are in Christ. We gotta see ourselves as we truly are. Next, when we begin to understand who we are in Christ, then we begin to know our true identity, our true identity, our privileges, and our purpose. Those things will come together once you see that 
especially what we're going to be looking at in these next verses. So first of all, what I want you to do is turn to Philippians chapter 3. I know it's not Ephesians. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I want you to see something that's very important, uh, and we'll see that in just a moment. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that many of us are familiar with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Many of you have memorized this verse. It's here on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now think about that. In Christ. The whole idea of being in him. That that is a very popular way of seeing who we are. It has something to do with our identity. So he says, old things have passed away, uh, there are things that have become new. The whole idea of a new creation. Now the transition from the old creation to the new creation, there's one thing you need to understand. It's the same person. It's just there's an old creation, there's a new creation. Something transitions. What transitions when we come, when we're now in Christ, when we come to him? Our attitudes transition, our reaction, our actions, our behaviors, our perspectives. But let me tell you what this verse is really all about. All those things do happen. But this verse is more about our identity. Something changes in who we are. Our identity changes. When it says a new old creation to a new creation, it speaks of something that's never existed before is now existing. And that rests in one person. It rests in you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the key to that whole verse is that phrase, in Christ. It speaks of our new identity. John MacArthur once wrote this. Look at the quote here on the screen. People today are greatly concerned about their identity, life purpose, and self-worth. Consequently, there are many books, articles, journals, and seminars that attempt to bring answers to these longings. But because God and his word are not considered in most such attempts, the only source for finding the truth is eliminated. And thus people inevitably are led back to themselves for the answers. Let me just tell you this. Life purpose, true identity are not found in us. They're found in the one who created us. They're found in the provision of Christ. Solomon Think about it. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote a book on the subject. The book was Ecclesiastes. In this book, he shows us how he did everything under the sun to find a purpose for life, self-worth, and even finding his identity apart from God. He, he, I mean, look at the, the chapters. They click away, and he tries everything. And by the way, he had everything at his disposal. He was one of the richest men of that day. And so what happened is he went from this, it didn't provide. It went to this, it didn't provide. It didn't give him purpose. It didn't fulfill what was longing within him. It didn't truly reveal his identity. And he went on and on and on. We come to the very end of the, of the last verses of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Look at what it says. His conclusion was this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What is he concluding? I tried everything. Everything this world has to offer. I tried it all. He came to this thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. I thought it was in this. I thought it was in that. I thought it was in this. A whole list there in the whole book. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, let's sum it up. 
life purpose, self-worth, and identity do not come from within us. It comes from our creator. When we try to find these things within us, listen, we come up empty. We do. Some of you have spent many years of your life doing that. You're trying to find identity. You're trying to find self-worth. You're trying to find purpose in things of this world. It won't last. It may last for a season, but it will, you'll come back to that same void that you had before, just as Solomon. Listen, when we try these things within us or when we look to ourselves to bring these things about, we can even bring devastation to our lives because we then enter into this life cycle, many of us, as, as a form of addictions because we're looking for something. We're looking, to give us, we're looking for something to give us purpose, self-worth, where our identity is. Look on your outline. The possible identities as relating to God. Where, where do these identities come? When it comes to our relationship with God, what, what are our three options when it comes to who we are? First of all, there's something called shame-based identity. Shame-based identity. I'm just gonna tell you, I'll be transparent with you. I've lived a lot of my adult years with this identity. I did. I mean, there's been things in my life, early on especially when I, I was a teenager, things I was not proud of, uh, and, and it created some shame in my life. I didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, my, the whole way I looked at things is, is really through this lens. Look at that quote. I am, ho I am hopeless and cannot be accepted by God. I wasn't sure if my sin could have ever been forgiven. And so therefore, from this shame-based identity, we work to be accepted. Many get overwhelmed and give up. The whole idea is this. I can't work off what I have done. And many people are living there. Some of you sitting here today are living there. That is a reality. That is your identity. And therefore, if that's the case, many of you possibly have even given up and thought, I'm just gonna go with those things. And so you move in that direction. But number two, there's a performance-based identity. I must do certain things for God to approve of me and to keep approving of me. I've gotta continue this cycle of performance. It's that whole idea of work to become approved and to keep being approved by God. There's a lot of people caught up in that. Listen, neither one of these are scripturally sound. Neither one of these are found in the whole idea of what Christ has done on our behalf. Third, Christ-based identity. This is where it is. This is where it all comes. Listen, if I have a Christ-based identity, there is nothing I have done in the past that could keep God from accepting me for I am in him. And there is nothing I can do on my own to get God to approve of me for I am in him. Y'all, that's the condition in which we find ourselves. That's what uh, Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14 is gonna show you. Not the option of shame-based identity, not performance-based identity, but Christ-based identity. Now, the phrase in him is also in the language of identity. The language of identity. I want you to look at Philippians chapter three. And we're gonna look at a couple of verses here that I think you'll find very interesting. Paul seemed to have misplaced his identity. Early on, he, he was even confused by it all. And, and so in Philippians chapter five, look at verse five. This is how Paul saw his identity. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, 
concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But then he says this, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. These things that his whole identity was wrapped up in. And in this list, you see definitely performance-based identity. And in some ways, you can kind of see shame-based identity because he did persecute the church. He did kill Christians. He's lived under all that. But then you come to, to verse seven. He says, I've learned that this is not really where I am. That's not really who I am. And then he goes on, verse eight. Yes, indeed, also I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. When he says I might gain Christ, he's saying that I can, I can come to him and my whole being be wrapped up in who he is. That's where we get the whole idea of being in Christ. And then it says this, that I may be gain Christ and be found where? In him, not having my own righteousness, which was my previous identity, performance-based, not in that, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's the whole idea. What he's telling us, he's basically saying, my identity was found in the wrong things until I came to know Christ and everything changed. And that's what we're going to share with you here in just a moment. So now turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, as you turn there, I want you to see that I have a $100 bill. Now this is for demonstration purposes only. You're not really getting this. Nobody is. Okay? So, so here we have a $100 bill. Now, how many of you would like to have this $100 bill? Raise your hand. Like to have it. Yeah. I mean, we all want, yeah, I'll take another 100 That'd be great. Now, now, now let's do something. Let's, let's kind of wad it up and, okay. Now look at it. How, how many of you, Still want this $100 bill. Okay. Um, I mean, no disrespect for demonstration purposes only. I mean, I mean, think about, I mean, I'm not doing a dance. I'm just trying to stomp this thing into the ground. How many of you still would like to have this? <laughs> Willard obviously thinks that if the first hand goes up, he gets the 100. His, his hand went up. Now, think about this. And this gets back, this is a perfect illustration of what we're talking about. Think about this. No matter what I do to this $100 bill, you still want it, don't you? Do you know why you still want it? Because it did not decrease in value. It was still valuable to you. It was still worth what was said about it. What was said about it? Well, the fact it's a $100 bill. The, the, the one who created it deemed that this is a $100 bill. Now, many times in our lives, we are dropped, crumbled, and, and, put, uh, and ground into the dirt of life by the decisions that we make and the circumstances that come our way. We feel as though we are worthless. How many of you have been there? There's been a time in your life where you just felt worthless. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we've, we've all been there. But no matter what has happened or what will happen, we will never lose our value. 
Dirty or clean, crumpled or finely creased, we are still priceless when it comes to Christ. When we know him, when we are in him, we're still valuable. The value of who we are, listen, is not in what we do or what, who we know, but by who we are in Christ. Listen, the $100 bill is the real deal. This is not a counterfeit. If someone were to look at it, they would say, no, this is the real deal. If it's the real deal, it will always have value. The problem is many times there's a lot of counterfeits. There's a lot of uh, those bills out there that are there that, 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 you, that it is counterfeit. It's not the real thing. But this is the real thing. And as a result, no matter what we do to it, it still has value. That is what Paul is telling us about who we are in these verses today. He's saying no matter where you've come from, no matter what kind of mistakes you made in the past, no matter how you see yourself, maybe it's shame-based. Listen, that's not how God sees you. And maybe, maybe you're one that's worked hard all your life to get where you are and you felt like surely God will accept me now and you still feel the void. You still feel that thing and it's just not, still not right. What Paul is getting ready to tell us is that you're very valuable. Now, let me put this back in my pocket if you don't mind. All right, now, look on your outline. Our new spiritual realities include this. Now, this is, we're valuable to God because we're in Christ. What does it mean? Here it is. He has given us and we have every, or we have spiritual blessings. Look at verse three of Ephesians chapter one. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's interesting about the first word in verse three. Uh, when it says blessed, it's literally where we get the, uh, the, the, the language or the word eulogy. How, how many of you, you know what a eulogy is, right? And, and really, when you think about what that is, it's a declaration of one's goodness, okay? That's what a eulogy is. That's the reason when you go to a memorial service, someone is standing up speaking well of the person, it's a declaration of goodness. And that's how Paul was saying this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells us why he sees it that way. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That verse is loaded. Look at, look at the word there in verse three. Every. Look on your outline. Every implies that he has not withheld. He has not withheld. So when he says every spiritual blessing, he's not holding anything back. It's the idea of completeness and without void. Colossians chapter two, verse nine says this, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, if he'd have said that and just left it there, we would have good theology, but he carries it a step further. He says, and you are complete Where? In him. So, so that connection between God the Father and God the Son, the completeness that you find in them is, is continued to whom? To us who are in Christ. There's a completeness there. Now the word in, I-N in scripture is the most essential preposition to theology, I believe, in the English language. I mean, it is vital. The, the preposition in is vital to good Christian theology. Everything we need, the spiritual blessing, to live a full and abundant life has already been given to us. A lot of people don't realize that. 
All those spirits. It says every spiritual blessing, everything that we need, we're complete. The problem is we haven't discovered these things yet. For many people, they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I have no doubt that many are saved. They know him, but they're not discipled. Part of the discipleship process is to help people discover who they are in Christ. Because until they understand their identity in Christ, many times their behaviors will not change. How they see themselves will not change. And so it's important that they see them as he sees them. So he's already given us these things. It's just a matter of discovery. What has he given us? Well, these are not on your outline, but this is what the Bible says. There's a love that's received and a love to give. Part of the special special. Uh, spiritual blessings that we find in scripture is the fact that we've been given love, not only love that we can receive, we've been given love that we can give. That is a spiritual blessing that we have. How about this? Peace in the midst of turmoil. That comes in him. Here's another one. Strength to withstand temptation and circumstances. Here's another one. Joy that is full. All these things. These are spiritual blessings. This is just a small list. Now, let me tell you something about the enemy. Let's read what God's word says this. He says, he has blessed us with every, that's key, spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. It means has never withheld. Let me tell you what the enemy does to a lot of us. He tries to convince you that God is withholding. He did it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and I want you to look at the words here on the screen. This is verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent, who is really whom? Satan, the enemy. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now think about what he's doing. Did God tell him? Yeah, you're going to, I mean, you're going to die. There's going to be a death, not, maybe not a physical death, but there's going to be some form of death here associated with this. And here's what the serpent said. He goes on to say, he contradicts God, contradicts God, and then he says this, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Do you know what that language is? A language that God is withholding something. The enemy, think about the temptations that he brings to our lives. Think about the destruction he seeks to bring. There are many people, well-meaning people, Here's what they do. When they step out into sin, when they partake of what the enemy offers, here's what you need to think about. They're basically in their mind saying that God is withholding. And so what they do is they reach beyond their identity. I I think those who know Jesus Christ, and let's be honest, Adam Adam and Eve had an intimate relationship with God before this time, okay? But there came a point where the enemy convinced Eve that God was withholding. He does the same thing to us even good Christian people, that God is withholding. And he says, hey, here's another whole thing over here you haven't even considered. Here's something that you can do you haven't even considered. Because God knows if you you start doing that, I mean, he's withholding. It goes on. Look at what it says again. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
You see, here's what we got to understand. When the enemy pitches his temptations, we need to go back to this one verse. He's given us every spiritual blessing. God's not withholding. And so part of the temptation that comes our way, the way we fight that is not only understand our identity in Christ and what he's done and what he's provided for us, but we must understand that there is, the enemy is creating a delusion in our minds and in our hearts that God is withholding. So as a result, as a result, we've got to take God at his word and basically this would be a good verse to memorize. Every spiritual blessing he has not withheld. He's given to us. That means with everything that we need, we can be complete in him. You see, God has given us every spiritual blessing. And because of this, we have need of nothing. We are complete. We don't have to live with a void in our souls. Listen, every time you make a move towards the world and sin in your flesh, you're making a move towards something that will not complete you, that will leave you with a void, that will never satisfy. Solomon's already told us this. He experienced everything. Listen, read Ecclesiastes. I mean, he experienced everything, everything. You know why he did all that? I happen to believe, based on the language that we have in the New Testament, because he believed God was withholding. And he went out after all these things under the sun. Next, look on your outline. Heavenly places, not of this world. Look at verse three again. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Heavenly places. It's beyond what this world offers. It's beyond the circumstances of life. It's beyond what your flesh offers. It's beyond how you see yourself. James 1.17 says this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? From above. But you know how we conduct our lives in this world? We think the perfect gift is right here in this world. We think we can somehow ascertain it or have it by moving with our flesh towards it. And it just doesn't work that way. It says, and these things come down from the father of lights. And then it says this, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When he says, okay, he's given you every good gift, every perfect gift is coming from above. It's come down from the father of lights. That means there's, there's, there's no fallacy to it. There's no deception to it there. And then he says, there's no variation. You know what that literally means? You can count on it. You can count on it. How many of you have had the enemy convince you at times in your life that you couldn't count on God? Oh, yeah, we've been there. How about this? No shadow of turning. God is not giving you these things to manipulate you, to, to bring deceit to your life. But you know what the enemy will do in the, in the points of his temptation? He will convince you that that's what's going on. He will convince you that God is manipulating your life. God is manipulating these things. I mean, he does that. So the last part of the verse is counter to the voice of the enemy. Listen to this. A focus on the flesh in this world is a loss of focus of the new realities which we have in Christ. If we aren't focused on the realities that we have in Christ, these new spiritual blessings, if we don't, if we don't keep those in focus, the only other option is to focus on the other things, the things of the flesh. And by the way, let me just tell you this. You can only focus on one. You know that, right? Did you know that um, every day we should wake up with this on our minds, that we choose to focus on the things of God today, not the things of this world, not the things that will bring harm, 
and we need to call it what it is because over here is deception. Over here, the enemy's trying to pull one on us. And, and by the way, we fall, we fall into it, don't we, at times? But, but it, it never leads anywhere. We gotta realize not only what Christ has done and what he's provided, these new spiritual blessings, but we need to understand who we are now. We're his child. There's something else at work. So, so the new focus really tells us that we are to be heavenly minded. Now, let me tell you what that looks like. This is pretty cool. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians how we are to experience what this world brings with a heavenly mindset. How many of you experience what the world brings to you at times? You don't have a choice sometimes, do you? I mean, it's there. It's upon you. So here's what he says about it. Look at this verse. We are hard-pressed on every side. How many of you have been hard-pressed on every side? Been there this week. How many of you have been there? Felt that all day yesterday. I don't know what was going on yesterday. Maybe it's because the sermon has great value this morning. But, but look here. We are hard-pressed on every side. That is a earthly perspective of what we're dealing with. But here's the heavenly perspective, yet not crushed. I mean, think about that. That's where we are. We are hard-pressed on every side, but to be heavenly-minded, we gotta realize we're still not crushed. We're still of this world, but we don't have to be in that world. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Uh, listen, persecuted, but not forsaken. Earthly was persecuted, not forsaken, heavenly-minded. Struck down, earthly-minded, but not destroyed, heavenly-minded. These are the new realities in which we can live in Christ. It doesn't mean life's gonna be easy. It doesn't mean it's gonna be smooth sailing, but it does mean that God can do a great work in our life as a result of these things. Next, look on your outline. In Christ, provided by Christ. Now, this is important. You're gonna see in him, in Christ, in the beloved, over and over again in these verses because that's the theme of what we have. So it says, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places... How? In Christ. You know what that literally means? It literally means in the presence of. It means surrounded by. It means a placed in a definite place. Listen, because we are in Christ, everything he has, we have. Meaning, what he has, he has provided for us. Let me show you, let me give you an example right out of the scripture. How many of you... Um, Remember, remember the story of Moses and the ark. You remember Moses and the ark? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. It's Noah and the ark. Okay. I did that on purpose. I just wanted to see if you're listening. Kind of re-engage me again, okay? You know the story of Noah and the ark. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. So, oh, I remember this. Well, Moses did deal. No, he did kind of deal with an ark. But anyway, so Noah and the ark. Okay, now think about what took place in that story. Noah was placed where? It doesn't necessarily say he built the ark and then he decided he'd get on the ark because it looked like a storm was coming up. The Bible is very careful to demonstrate to us the right wording that you find in this story. That it's a story in which Noah is what? Placed in the ark. How do we know that? Because God's the one that shut the door. We know that. The hand of God, we know, shut the door. And so, you know what that's a picture of? Placed in the ark. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jesus is the ark. When it comes to us, Jesus is the ark. So Noah was placed in the ark. Now we have, here's the terminology we have when it says in him or in Christ. Now here we are. We're not placed in an ark, but we're placed in something better. We're placed in Jesus. It's a placement. Now, 
God put Noah in the ark and God puts us in Christ. Noah, what did that mean? Noah had the provision and the protection of being in the ark. The provision and the protection. Noah was put in there. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you think that trip was like uh, getting on a pontoon boat on a Sunday afternoon on the lake? Nothing like it. Did they see storms? Did they feel the, the rocking of the ship? Were they probably bent over, losing their lunch? I mean, they were dealing with all these different things, but guess what? They were still in the ark. They were still in the protection of God. They were still in the provision of God. The same picture is that of us when it comes to us being in Christ. We have his protection. We not only have his protection, we, had his, we have his provision. And that's what's being discussed here in these verses. Next, he has chosen us. We have a destiny. Let, let me say this. We were not created to live without a destiny. Can I tell you what goes into being, having a destiny? Life purpose, self-worth, and true identity. That, every bit of that has been given to us by Christ. Every bit of it. So therefore, we were created for destiny. We were created for that. We are to live with an identity that's found in Christ and with a purpose to glorify God. So look at verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Let's break it down. So the phrase in him. Again, it's, a, it's provided by Christ. We're in him. The provisions are there. The protection is there. But then it says before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? It means we're not an after, afterthought. There was a plan all along. We're not an afterthought. The Bible says in Romans 8, 29, for whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Now, the language, this language we see here is of God's sovereignty, meaning that he is directing all of creation and all the activities of the universe, including salvation. So when God created the heavens and the earth and he filled the earth and all of a sudden we get to Genesis chapter three and there's a fall, God wasn't sitting there saying, what do we do now? There was always a plan through this process. There was always a plan. That plan has traveled all the way to us today. That plan is still being worked out. So, so we're, not a, we're not an afterthought. The words for knowledge and predestined is where we get the whole idea of the doctrine of election. Paul was state, stating that salvation is based on the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God means he has always had an inter, eternal plan for those who are saved. In scripture, the idea of election is a very controversial concept. Why is it controversial? Because it's not easy to understand. And to be honest with you, it's a mystery. You will never understand it. I get so frustrated. And I've told you this before, but you know what the big fight is in the Southern Baptist Convention right now? Over election. Like someone's gonna figure that one out. We hadn't figured that thing out in 2,000 years. We're not gonna figure it out now. It's, it's just something that's there. There's a, let's just accept it as the mystery of God. There's something there. So what does election mean? It simply put, it means to pick or choose. Election is, the, is that act by the divine will of God whereby before the foundation of the world, God chose to save an individual. 
If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, listen, then you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what this means. That's what election means. Now, the doctrine of salvation teaches both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. I gave you this not long ago, but it's worth repeating today. So, so what does all that mean? Well, you have human responsibility. That's where we have the whole idea of free will. Did you know that God did not create us as robots? If he did, he could have programmed that we love him and worship him into the equation, but he didn't do it that way. There was always a choice, a choice to choose him above the things of this world and above other things. And so there's that choice. The Bible says very clearly in Romans chapter 10, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him, on him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what's gonna happen? There shall be saved. I mean, that's human responsibility. But then there's divine sovereignty in salvation. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter one. Look at verse four again. Just as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To sum it up, salvation has two perspectives. Look here on the screen. First of all, you have the door. On one side of the door, remember several months or actually over a year ago, I had a door sitting here, same premise. There's human responsibility. We find it in Romans chapter 10. So when we come to know Jesus Christ, we take in that. So we're on one side of the door. When we open the door, step through it, look back on the other side, here's what we realize. That God was behind the whole thing the whole way. His divine sovereignty reached us. So on one side, it looks like we're making this big decision, and we are. We're coming to God on his terms, okay? Whosoever will. We step through the door. We can step on the other side of our salvation. That's part of discipleship. We begin to, begin to learn the mysteries of God, what God has done for us, the, the whole idea of identity, life purpose. And lo and behold, we look on the same door on the other side, and we find that God was orchestrating it the whole time. How many of you find that comforting? I mean, that is, uh, and there's a mystery to all this. It blows my So from the believer's perspective, he or she is saved the moment he or she calls on Jesus. From God's perspective, salvation is a finished work to eternity past. Now, here's what I want us to do. Here's what I've found when it comes to man trying to understand the heart of God and the mind of God. So many times, the great things that God has done on our behalf, we try to make it complicated. I think it grieves the heart of God that we're fighting over this issue, that we're trying to come to terms. All this is in an uproar. Let's just read, I mean, let's just think of this. Let's get past the controversy of election and take God at face value. Look at what it says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. How many of you just not, that just does not reach out to your heart and you just want to worship him and say, Wow, look at what he's done on our behalf. But instead, you know what we're going to say? I wonder what that really means. I mean, it's a great day. Does that mean he's done this and he's doing that? We can't even enjoy what he's done because we, we want to be confrontational and bring all the controversy to it. But take it at face value. He chose you before the foundation of the world, before the earth was created, before the fall, before the law, before Christ came. 
He chose you. Does that not just get in your mind, in your heart? Take it at face value. Next, he says, be holy. Look at verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation world that we should be holy. You know what? Here's what we need to understand. We cannot make ourselves holy. Did you know that? But he bestows his holiness on us. He, he gives us that. It's a whole idea. It's the same way you look at righteousness, the whole idea of this whole idea of holy. It, it literally means saved and sanctified. It's literally living in this new reality before God. Living in the new reality. I have self-worth in him. My, I have a Christ-based identity. I have a purpose. All that surrounds this terminology. Next, he says, without blame. It's literally living in this new reality before others. We're living in the reality before God. Now we're going to live it out in front of others. Look at what he says. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, look at that phrase, in love. It, it, it's by relationship, not religious observance. Y'all, that's where so many people get it wrong. Your identity is not found in religion. Your identity is found in Christ, which implies a relationship. Let me prove it to you. Look at, look at how this phrase in love is used. In this passage, the phrase in love seems to be a connector between what we should do for God and what he has done for us. Look at what it says. It says uh, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having, and then it says having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. There, there's, two, there's two appendages to this thing. In love is bridging the gap. If you, if you leave one off, you could, you could rightly say there's a whole idea of just religious observance. But no, there's a connecting point there. That means there's a relationship, an ongoing relationship found in him. I don't have time to cover the rest. We'll cover this next week. That's a good thing about doing a series. We can just, we'll come back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. I used to love that. I hate it when, anyway, let's go. Here's the application. Identify our identity is the evaluation of self or the individual characteristics from whom, from, from which a person thinks or operates. And here's the question. Where do you find your identity? This morning, sitting here today, do you find it in shame? Do you find it in performance? Y'all, they, they will leave you lacking. There will be a void there. You'll never feel complete in these. Or in him, Christ. The verse that best describes our identity in Christ is Galatians 2.20. I mean, it is. If you were to say, okay, give me one verse that just sums it all up. And guess what? Paul wrote this too. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who does what? Lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. Oh my man, I live my life in him. It's all about him. Does this describe your identity? Where are you this morning? Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior based on the authority of God's word, you're not living in the new spiritual realities that he has for you. 
You have a creator who loves you, who reached, to you, reached out to you through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says you can have provision in him. You can have protection in him by coming in him, moved into a definite place, which means in Christ. The way you get there is by faith, through repentance, through doing it God's way, through accepting his word as the truth and moving in that direction. Or maybe you're a Christian, you're here today. And I'm just going to tell you, I, you know my testimony. I, I know I came to know Jesus Christ when I was eight years old. I didn't understand it all. But I know that he began to do a work in my heart when I was eight years old. I have no doubt about that. I've never doubted that part. I did start doubting, however, when I got off that path. When I started focusing more on the identity of, of the, what the world had to offer and looking at those things, and all of a sudden, guess what? Even though I started in him, my identity was in him. Guess what? I traded that for a while in my life for a shame-based identity. And it took me years to work through that. It took counseling. It took someone to come alongside of me to help me to see, no, you are Christ. You're you of value. You're that $100 bill. Doesn't matter that you made decisions that crumbled you up. Doesn't matter that, that life hit you in such a way that you felt like you were stomped on. But you're still value to God because it wasn't a counterfeit it was the real deal. So here's the question. Are you the real deal this morning? If you're the real deal, you don't have to live believing the lies of the enemy. You're of great worth to him. He loves you. He wants you to come back. Where are you this morning? Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you'll just use it in our hearts, Lord, to convict us, to show us where we need to be and help us to move in that right direction. Father, I thank you for those that are here this morning. And, and Father, I just pray you'll have your way in our hearts. Show us who we are in you. Show us that purpose. Show us the, 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 where the worth needs to come from. It comes from you. Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge in Jesus' name. Getting ready to sing the hymn of invitation.